This is Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Election Commission has released an unofficial estimate of voter turnout in last Tuesday's election. According to the unofficial tally, nearly 57% of the state's eligible voters cast a ballot in the election. That is unusually high for midterm elections, but still does not match the state's record turnout in 2018, which was nearly 60% of eligible voters, according to WKOW. Official turnout numbers won't be available until local, local election statistics are reported back to the state and could result in slightly higher numbers. A survey designed to measure how students in the University of Wisconsin system feel about viewpoint diversity and freedom of speech was sent out to randomly selected students today. The survey, which was initially scheduled for May, was delayed after concerns were raised about the partisan nature of the survey, leading to a chancellor resigning in protest, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. The survey, which asks students' opinion on how well their First Amendment rights are being protected by the university and how often they come in contact with opinions they disagree with, has been accused of pushing conservative concerns about the UW system onto the students. The survey is funded by the Menard Center for the Study of Institutions and Innovation at UW-Stout, which is in turn funded by the conservative billionaire John Menard. As a result of redistricting in the city of Madison, Alder Patrick Heck switched residency from District 2, which he represents, to District 6. With residency requirements coming into effect for the spring 2023 election, he would not be able to run for re-election for the district and announced today that he will not run for election to the District 6 seat. This leaves District 6 as an open seat since no other current Alders live in District 6. Madison City Council has been experiencing high turnover, with four council members resigning from the council since the last election for various reasons, and several initiatives have been introduced to address the undesirability and the stress of the job. Heck encouraged people considering running for a seat on the council to reach out to him for insight into the job, and he also referred people to the city's county clerk office for information on how to run for city council. Madison Metro School Board member Nikki Vandermeulen announced her intention to run for a third term in the spring on Friday. Vandermeulen is the longest-serving member of the MMSD School Board, which rotates its elections so that at least two seats are open each election cycle. The other member of the board up for election in the spring, Christina Gomez-Schmidt, has not announced her intentions for re-election yet, although she said she would have a decision in a few weeks, according to the Capital Times. Vandermeulen says if re-elected, she would focus on securing more funding for the district, increasing the quality of school lunches, and increasing pay for teachers and staff. The city of Madison's alternate side winter parking begins tonight and will remain in effect until March 15th next year. People parking in the city outside a snow emergency zone between the hours of 1 and 7 a.m. will have to park on the odd-numbered side of the street on odd-numbered days and the even-numbered side of the street on even-numbered days. If you park in a snow emergency zone, you only have to obey the alternate side parking restrictions on days that have been declared a snow emergency. 
The City of Madison Winter website has a map of the city if you need to determine what kind of zone you live in. And you can also sign up for text notifications and reminders on the website for parking guidance. And now, on to today's top stories. Back in September, it was revealed that the Madison Public Market, like so many other public projects, was over budget by about $5 million. And while both the mayor and city's finance committee declined to help make up that funding, a group of alders are asking the city to help close that gap, with the help of Dane County. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. Budget deliberations kick off tomorrow. The Madison City Council has several long meetings in store where it will decide both its capital and operating budgets over the course of this week. The operating budget is for day-to-day expenses such as staff wages and supplies. The capital budget is for building physical infrastructure and long-term projects such as a new building or replacing a road. And combined, the operating and capital budget guides city priorities through spending for the year ahead. This week, a group of alders are asking to give the Madison Public Market a new chance at life through a budget amendment for the capital budget. The Madison Public Market Foundation calls the market a, quote, year-round public market where small businesses and minority business owners can get their start. According to the project's website, it would hold fresh produce, food stands, merchant space for local artists, and community rooms. District 12 Alder and former Common Council President Syeda Boss represents the area that would contain the market just outside of East Town Mall and has been a longtime proponent of the project. A dash to equity, economic development for small, medium size of business holders, also providing an opportunity and unlocking barriers uh, for immigrants, community of colors, and other communities members who are invested in, in food industry and especially City of Madison invests $100,000 of market ready program. So this public market is a platform for them to, uh, you know, move forward to the next step. While the idea of a public market has been around for over 15 years, the Common Council finally approved the project back in 2015 with a budget of around $14 million. But as the pandemic hit in 2020, the market, like many other local projects, quickly saw itself the target of inflation and is currently projected to be around $5 million over budget. James Shulkin is a board member on the Madison Public Market Foundation, the group that would run the Madison Public Market. He says that after both the mayor and city's finance committee declined to provide the needed funding to continue the market, Alder Abbas decided to take action for himself. Alder Abbas, who I know attended the finance committee, he was the one that was very interested in, in making sure that there's some kind of amendment going forward to revise the, the capital budget and put funds forward uh, specific to the, the public market and its financing. The new amendment, included in the city's capital budget, is sponsored by Alder Syed Abbas, Regina Vidavir of District 5, and Nazra Wahili of District 7. The amendment looks to add $6 million to the project using funding from the tax district on the Near East Side. The amendment would also accept $1.5 million in funding that was included in the recently passed Dane County budget. That funding was passed by the county board last week on the condition that the city finds a way to fund the rest of the project. But if the project is about $5 million over budget, why bring the city and county's new investment total up to $7.5 million? Alder Abbas says that this way the project won't face more hurdles. So if next year we're going to go into the construction phase, 
uh, as as a sponsor of the amendment, my intent was we should look into uh, in case if the cost goes increase, we don't need to come back to the council and get approval. So let's get it done now. So we have predictability uh, in the project. Both Alder Abbas and James Shulkin say that they feel confident that the market will get the votes they need to keep the project afloat. That's because, as City Finance Director David Schmidtke explains, they won't need to borrow any money to fund it. Geo-borrowing, that stands for general obligation borrowing. That's So we would issue debt and receive that money and pay interest on that. Uh, in contrast, what's in the um, amendment would be um, basically just tax increment revenues in tax increment district 36 in which the public market is located and that there are um, or expected to be sufficient incremental revenues in that tax increment district to cover both what's already been budgeted for the um, public market in in prior uh, city capital budgets as well as what's proposed in this amendment. Not everyone is on board with the plan to provide more funding to the public market. Council President Keith Furman says that the money used from the tax district could be used in other, more sustainable ways. Furman says that by funding the market now, it could open up the city to having to shell out more money down the road. I think if you look at the amount of money that we'll have committed towards the market, if the amendment passes, um, we will be in a position where we'll have to continue to support the market no matter what what the business model looks like. I'm not convinced that the market is going to be able to be profitable um, anytime soon, but at some point um, they will need money to be subsidized and the city will be on the hook for that. And I think when we have serious structural budget issues now that will only get worse, I don't want the city to be obligated to provide this this building additional funds. But Alder Regina Vitiver, who co-sponsors the amendment, says that those fears are overblown. There is a business plan agreement with the Madison Public Market Foundation. They will take on the operations and that will not be on the city side. So the city's agreement has always been to provide the funding to develop the market and that then the foundation would take over the operations. And there has, nothing in that has changed. Um, and I believe that the business plan is very strong from the foundation to be able to be successful in those operations long term. In all, there are eight proposed amendments to the 2023 capital budget. While the public market is the most expensive amendment up for debate, there are still three other amendments that would cost over $1 million. These include a $1 million grant for the River Food Pantry to purchase a new building and $3.5 million to help build the new Truman Olson grocery store on the city's south side to fill in the neighborhood food desert. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. In other budget news, the Madison Council will also be deciding the operating budget. One of the 16 amendments to come before Alders this week is an expansion of Madison's policing alternative. WORT reporter Antonio Barrera Solzano dove into the operating budget this afternoon. The amendments in the operating budget request funds for everything from creating a new park volunteer coordinator position to issuing bus passes to low-income individuals to increasing the budget of an affordable student housing study. One funding priority is the subject of two separate amendments, both aimed at increasing funding for Madison CARES program. That's the Community Alternative Response Emergency Services, which started up last year as a way to respond to some nonviolent behavioral health emergency calls without sending law enforcement. Here's Council President Keith Furman. 
the sponsor of one of two amendments seeking to expand CARES funding. So this amendment is um, a continued commitment towards funding our Madison's CARES program, um, which provides an alternative um, to sending out uh, uniformed police officers uh, to calls that can better be handled by social workers and paramedics. Both amendments seek to expand the program by creating two new positions. The first position is a community paramedic who would act as a first responder. The other position is a program manager that would deal with the administrative side of CARES operations. Additionally, the amendments also want funds to contract a crisis worker for half a year and purchase supplies for the program. This expansion would allow CARES to create a new response team and operate 12 hours a day, 7 days a week. Although both amendments are seeking to expand the same program, the elders have not agreed on the best way to go about doing this. The amendment co-sponsored by Alder Furman is looking to reallocate funds from the Madison Police Department. That amendment would use money the city has put aside to recruit more police officers through a federal grant known as COPS. Alder Furman says that reallocating the budget is essential if the city wants to keep costs down. Um, that grant, although is helpful, and uh, the funding from the federal government is helpful the first few, few years, it very quickly ends up being a very expensive addition to our budget when we're experiencing um, strong structural deficits that are only going to get worse in the next few years. Alder Yanet Figueroa Cole, the other co-sponsor of the amendment, tells WORT today that the removal of the COPS program in the proposal is not about taking from the police, which she describes as more than generous. Instead, she says that she support CARES because it's about, quote, allocating funding to other agencies with the expertise to deal with the issues. When it comes to youth engagement, MPD should serve as a supporting role, not lead the efforts. The same applies to mental health, unquote. Meanwhile, another amendment sponsored by three other alders as well as Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway proposes expanding CARES without adjusting the budget for the Madison Police Department. Budget deliberations begin tomorrow night at 5.30, when the council will hear input from the public. Deliberations will continue through Wednesday and Thursday. You can watch deliberations in person or virtually on Madison City Channel. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Antonio Barreras Lozano. It's now 6.21 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Wisconsin, one of the most powerful actions a governor has is to appoint people to head different state agencies and boards, such as the Natural Resources Board and the Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protections. But for the last four years, the Republican-led legislature has refused to hold confirmation hearings for Governor Evers' appointees, meaning that those appointed can be fired at any time or never take up their position. 
But as Governor Evers gets ready for his second term, will lawmakers agree to put some of his appointees into power? WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Henry Redman, reporter with the Wisconsin Examiner, about the future of Tony Evers' appointees. So, Henry, just sort of starting things off here, your story that was published today in the Wisconsin Examiner is about the uh, future of Governor Evers' appointees uh, in his second term. So, but before we go into what the future looks like, uh, let's talk about the last four years. What has been the Republican strategy in regards to Evers' appointees for state agencies and boards? Yeah. I mean, for the last four years, in a lot of positions, the Republican strategy has been to just not hold confirmation votes for the state agencies. That means the governor's nominated cabinet secretaries serve as secretary designees. Um, And with that hanging over their heads, the Senate essentially has the ability to fire them whenever they want, because if, The secretary does something that the Senate doesn't like. They can finally hold that confirmation vote, vote them down, and then the governor has to put someone new up. Yeah, and so then with the uh, with the boards there, I think one of the most high-profile examples, at least as of late, uh, has been Fred Prane, who sits on the uh, Natural Resources Board. Uh, and his term expired last year, but he does still sit on the board, um, especially after a state Supreme Court ruling earlier this year. Uh, and so the, this is a bit of a two-part question for you here, but uh, I guess just to start, why did the Supreme Court rule uh, the way it did in the uh, Fred Prane case? Yeah, the Supreme Court ruled that just because a board member's term has expired doesn't mean that seat is vacant. So the governor can't appoint someone to fill that vacancy because, according to the Supreme Court, it doesn't exist yet, though this effectively makes it impossible for a Democratic governor to have someone put onto a board if the Republican Senate just refuses to confirm the governor's nominees. And in a state as gerrymandered as Wisconsin, that's a really big deal because like we saw for the previous four years, the Senate is perfectly willing to refuse to hold those votes. And now sticking on the topic of Fred Prane here, now that Evers has won uh, his second term here, has he given any indication about what his his plans are uh, going forward here? Do you know if he's planning on staying on for another four years or something like that? I don't know if he specifically has said anything about Evers' second term. I do know he has said he's going to stay in that seat until his replacement is confirmed which really puts it in the hands of the Senate. And now, speaking of the Senate, uh, I know Senate Majority Leader uh, Devin LeMahieu has made a few comments uh, recently about the future of Evers appointees. Uh, so so what can you sort of tell me about uh, that, what that looks like, and what happens now? Yeah, I was at a campaign event in October in Reedsburg for Republican Senate candidates, and at that event, Lemahieu was speaking and said if Evers was reelected, he wasn't sure that Senate Republicans would be able to stop the, quote, 
liberal takeover of Wisconsin's agencies and boards. Um, you know, it was the heat of a campaign. People say things in campaigns to try to get voters to vote for their side. And I don't totally see anything that's changed since before the election that would mean Lemahieu had to all of a sudden start holding all of these confirmation votes. But that's really the most concrete thing I've heard from him about it. His office did not respond to my questions about his plans. But in the days after the election, Governor Evers said more than once that he wants to sit down and talk with Senator Lemahieu and try to figure out how to work together to get these nominees confirmed. And then so sort of going from there for uh, just a second here, uh, as you said, Evers has come out and said that he's willing to sit down with uh, LeMayhew and talk about this and willing to work with Republicans to get uh, some of his appointees confirmed. Uh, I want to ask, do you do you know what this would sort of look like or what? Uh, has has LeMayhew said what he is looking for for an appointee? Uh, and then sort of from there, do you think the Republicans would actually work with him uh, on this issue? Yeah, well, la- this January when LeMayhew said he wasn't going to hold any more confirmation votes for the rest of Evers' first term, he said that Evers' nominees had been too partisan um, and I don't know if that's trying to get Evers to nominate people more towards the middle, but he has not given any sort of indication on sort of what he would want to trade or compromise on to get the nominees confirmed. Um, so I guess we'll have to see moving forward. Well, I've been talking with Henry Redman, a reporter with the Wisconsin Examiner, about the future of Governor Tony Evers' appointees uh, now that he has won a second term. Uh, Henry's story on the topic came out just today, so you can read more for yourself over on wisconsinexaminer.com. Henry, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Today is the anniversary of the Night of Terror in 1917. 33 suffragists were beaten and tortured in a federal prison near Washington, D.C., for the right to vote. The event helped galvanize support for the suffrage movement. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long For the union men and women, standing up and standing Today, strong. November 14th, is the anniversary of the Night of Terror in 1917 when 33 women suffragists were clubbed, beaten, and tortured in a federal prison near Washington, D.C. This helped galvanize public support for the suffrage movement. From the beginning of Woodrow Wilson's second term in 1917, the National Women's Party had picketed daily at the White House. They became known as the Silent Sentinels. Many picketers were harassed, arrested, and unjustly treated by local and federal authorities. They carried sometimes elaborate banners, 
that used Wilson's own words against him. Initially, the marchers were viewed with curiosity and sympathy by onlookers and tolerated by the White House. But in April, after the nation's entry into World War I, the public mood turned ugly. Protesters did not stop because of the war. They held Wilson as the pinnacle of democracy abroad, but not at home. By June, the crowds became angry. They thought the women were unpatriotic. The police warned the women that they would be arrested if they continued. Nevertheless, they persisted. The first arrests were in June, three-day sentences for obstructing the sidewalk. The judges fined the women $25 or three days in jail. They chose jail. After serving three days, the women returned to picketing, but the women arrested in August were sentenced to 60 days at the Aquacon Federal Workhouse, a notorious prison in northern Virginia. By November, Several picketers had been arrested multiple times. The suffragists were refused their demand to be considered political prisoners, a distinction that could mean better treatment at the D.C. jail instead of Occoquan. On November 10th, 33 suffragists were arrested at a White House protest and put in Occoquan. Rats ran in and out of unlit cells. The prisoners held contests to count the numbers of maggots in their food, and the prison denied the women a most human dignity, their privacy. One activist, Dorothy Day, recalled in her memoir, the long loneliness. In the morning, we were taken one by one to a washroom at the end of the hall. There was a toilet in each cell, open, and paper and flushing were supplied by the guard. It was as though one were in a zoo, with the open bars leading into the corridor. Day later co-founded the Catholic Workers, a radical pacifist organization. Prison officials denied them counsel. Many began hunger strikes. On the night of November 14th, the Occoquan Superintendent W.H. Whitaker ordered beatings. Male guards manacled the NWP's co-founder Lucy Burns by her hands to the bars above her cell and forced her to stand all night. Dorothy Day had her arms twisted behind her back and was slammed twice over the back of an iron bench. The guards threw Dora Lewis into a dark cell and smashed her head against an iron bed, knocking her out. Lewis's cellmate, Alice Kosu, believed Lewis dead suffered a heart attack, and was denied medical treatment until the next morning. The suffragists had one key White House sympathizer, Dudley Field Malone, an attorney who had advised Wilson's campaign, was the collector of import duties. His spouse was suffragist Doris Stevens, an Occoquan detainee. He resigned his position to represent the women in court. Doris Stevens' jailhouse correspondence about the ordeal was reported in the National Women's Party newsletter, outraging movement members and galvanizing public support. By November 28th, both Alice Paul in the D.C. jail and the Occoquan prisoners were let out on bail. In March 1918, the D.C. Court of Appeals declared that all the suffragists' arrests had been unconstitutional. Despite the ruling, arrests continued. On January 9th, Wilson announced his support of the suffrage movement. The NWP and other women's groups successfully campaigned in 1918 for pro-suffrage candidates who won a majority in Congress. Both houses passed the amendment by June 4th of 1919. At this point, the NWP stopped picketing, and nearly 500 women picketers had been arrested by then, and 168 served jail at the time. The amendment was officially ratified on August 26, 1920, after Tennessee became the 36th state to approve the amendment, passing it by a single vote. Legislator Harry T. Byrne had opposed the amendment but changed his mind after receiving a telegram from his mother, saying, Dear son, hooray, and vote for suffrage. Don't forget to be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat put the rat in ratification. Mrs. Cat 
was Carrie Chapman Cat, a suffragist leader. And that is our story for today. For the Passions of Past, I'm Harry Richardson. In February of 2021, the State Department of Natural Resources held their wolf hunting season, and within three days, hunters had killed over 200 wolves across the state. Conservationists and indigenous tribes slammed the DNR for the hunt, saying that it was based upon an outdated wolf management plan, which dictated how many wolves should be in Wisconsin at any given time. Last week, the DNR revised their wolf management plan, deciding to take a new approach to the state's relationship with gray wolves. 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Adrian Wideven, retired DNR biologist who headed the state's wolf recovery program until 2013, and current science advisor to Wisconsin Green Fire. What is this new plan? How will the plan affect Wisconsin's wolves? Brian asked Wideven about his thoughts on the DNR's new method of dealing with the animals. Adrian Whiteven is a retired DNR biologist who headed up the DNR's wolf recovery program from 1990 to 2013. Adrian now serves as a science advisor to Wisconsin Green Fire. He joins us now by phone. Thank you for having me, Brian. Well, let's start with the big question. Did the DNR get it right with their new wolf management plan? I like this plan. I think it has a lot of good science in it. I think the department did a good job trying to gather diverse opinions and uh, use the best available science. Uh, And probably the most important part of the plan is that uh, the DNR got away from having a numeric population goal and is going with uh, goals based on regional zones and the status and ecological benefits of wolves within those zones. So I think the DNR is doing a really good job in this plan. And what is it, the DNR talks a lot about this adaptive management approach. Can you explain what that means? Sure, and that was used in previous plans as well, but I think there's a greater emphasis on it, and that's the idea that you carefully look at a situation, you do uh, management activities, you review and examine your management activities, and then you modify based on new things you find or new information that becomes available and adjust and uh, keep the, keep uh, adjusting your management following the information that you're learning. And, and you mentioned regional differences and sort of looking, breaking up the state into different regions. How does the wolf population differ from region to region, and what would those regions look like? Sure. So the DNR has six zones planned across the state, and that's currently there are six zones, uh, harvest zones, but uh, for the plan they are being modified to better fit into the distribution and status of wolves within the different regions. And zones one and two represent kind of northwestern and northeastern Wisconsin, kind of core wolf areas. Zone 5 represents our central forest region, a, a kind of a, a distinct uh, core wolf area that's separated from the other two. And then we have a zone 3 and 4 that represents kind of the uh, intermediate areas between those uh, core areas. And then zone 6 is kind of the rest of the state, the areas that are considered marginal wolf habitat. So there are different goals based on the ability of the areas to support wolves and its value for wolf conservation. Now, even though wolf hunting is currently prohibited under the Federal Endangered Species Act, the DNR plan continues to talk about a wolf harvest. Is there an expectation that wolves will be delisted again by the feds? 
I think they will be. Uh, they've been delisted now in Wisconsin four different times uh, through legis- through uh, uh, actions by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, and, and that's one of uh, three ways that delisting can occur. The, another would be by congressional action, which is how wolves were delisted in western states. And a third possibility would just be judicial uh, delisting uh, by some judges ruling that wolves should no longer be on the endangered, threatened species list. Uh, but the most common way that delisting is done is through the Fish and Wildlife Service. But in any case, the population in Wisconsin and the Great Lakes region is quite healthy, so we expect delisting to again occur. And in Wisconsin, the state uh, law requires that the DNR holds a wolf hunting and trapping season anytime they're not on the federal or state endangered or threatened species list. So last fall, the DNR estimated that there were about 972 wolves in Wisconsin. Uh, Green Fire and others criticized the DNR's methodology at the time. Do you think the agencies fixed their estimation methods in the new plan? Uh, Wisconsin Green Fire did not uh, question the methodology. Okay, uh, I think there My are mistake. others who have. Uh, <clears throat> we agree that the, the current methodologies are suitable uh, for uh, estimating the wolf population, but recognize that the, the methodology does have a level of a range of, of possibilities and levels of uncertainty in them. Uh, but in general, I think uh, the 972 was announced this fall, this fall, but it actually represented the last winter's population. And uh, that seemed like a reasonable number of animals in the state, and it represented about a 14% decline from the previous year, which is what many of us had expected with the effect of that February 2021 wolf hunt. What would a optimal, sustainable population of wolves in Wisconsin look like, in your view? I, th- I think... Uh, that's one of the things the plan tries to achieve. Uh, what some of us had determined previously from uh, modeling work was that uh, a, a potential carrying capacity for Wisconsin, about 1,240 wolves, uh, by having these regional uh, plans, eventually I think the population is going to level off somewhere near a 1,000 wolves or perhaps a, a few more. But the, the emphasis is on maintaining healthy population on, a, on each individual zones instead of trying to achieve a specific number. But I think somewhere in that range of 1,000, 1,200 animals is probably the level the population is probably going to uh, eventually reach. Now, does the wolf population need to be managed at all? What would happen if we just let nature take its course? Well, I think we could say that about many other wildlife species, and in totally wild ecosystems, they don't need to be managed. But we are in in a highly altered human ecosystem here, and wolves do kill livestock. Uh, They potentially have some impact on uh, game populations. Uh, They do cause concerns where they kill pets and, and dogs. And uh, there probably are places where uh, a healthy wolf population would not be uh, welcome. Having wolves right in the outskirts in urban areas where uh, they're occasionally killing dogs and, and uh, uh, creating more problems for people would be uh, undesirable. Uh, not that wolves are going to settle well into those kind of areas, but the possibilities are for more conflicts if you have wolves living in places where there's a lot more people and their animals. So I think some level of management is necessary, but it probably varies across the landscape, and that's what the zone system tries to do, is that within the, the core areas, the management, the impacts try to be much more minimum on the wolf population in areas where there's a lot more 
potential for conflict. There's a lot more human infrastructure. There's more uh, intense controls on the wolf population. Now, one of the things that we are learning from the 2020 census uh, of humans is that the human population across the state of Wisconsin is uh, is somewhat dynamic as well. And we're seeing parts and counties in the northern parts of the state are starting to lose population. And uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, less agriculture and livestock occurring in, in some of those parts of the state. Does the new DNR management plan take those kinds of things into consideration as well? Or well, is it I looking at a fairly static population? process is that as, cha- as changes occur on the landscape, you adjust your management. And that's the kind of thing that's been seen in Europe, in places like Italy and in Poland, places that uh, where uh, agriculture has declined in in decades and have gone back to wilder places that wolves are returning to some of those places because they're now again wildlands and they were farmed areas maybe 40 50 years ago so where you have the pot the these areas being kind of depopulated, uh, that does make uh, provide the opportunity for additional wildlands where uh, wildlife such as wolves and elk and deer can thrive in those places. And uh, so you've mentioned that you, in general, think that the DNR did a pretty good job on this report. Are there things that you'd still like to see improved? Well, I think there's just uh, there's some fine-tuning on the exact zone boundaries, some uh, fine-tuning on the direction of there's information in there on the length of uh, training seasons for training dogs on wolves. Uh, some of those kind of things, I think, uh, could use some adjustment yet. Uh, uh, but in, in general, I think it's it's fairly minor things that I'd like to see modified. But in general, the, the overall uh, wolf plan, I think, seems like a good plan. And what have you heard uh, so far, if anything, from um, other uh, people, other stakeholders in the in the wolf hunt? What have have the any of the native Wisconsin tribes or uh, any wolf advocates commented on the plan yet? I haven't heard anything, but I know that that there was quite an effort by the department in this plan to to insert more of the tribal concerns. And one of the things that the DNR did was create buffer areas around Indian reservations so that those areas would receive only very limited quotas for hunting to keep them uh, have much less of an impact on packs that are living on reservations. And that was something the tribes had been requesting, that that the DNR create these buffer areas around the reservation. So I'm guessing the tribes are going to be pleased that that was included in the current plan. And talk about the ecological importance of a top predator in the ecosystem, and particularly in Wisconsin. What, why, why is that important? Sure. that uh, It's been found in Wisconsin and other places that having these uh, apex predators in place like wolves, it has impacts on the deer herd and, and generally less of a reduction of a deer herd, but kind of changing the deer herd around as far as their movement patterns. They're, the wolves are kind of the shepherds of the deer herd, that there's over, less over-browsing, over-grazing in interior wolf pack areas where you have a greater diversity of wildflowers, uh, more trees, young tree saplings growing. Uh, There's uh, perhaps a higher red fox population because wolves are suppressing uh, uh, the coyotes. And that in turn has impacts on the rodents and the rodents that might be feeding on seedlings for trees or or the seeds that are going to be producing trees. Uh, So it has potential impacts on the diseases that spread through the deer herd by 
culling animals that are diseased. So things like chronic wasting disease could be reduced by the presence of a healthy wolf population. So it has, yeah, these very broad ecological uh, effects. And do you see uh, wolves um, in, in spread? I mean, are the wolf population in Wisconsin uh, spread from uh, by itself from Minnesota. Do you see that population spreading to other Midwestern states? Well, thus far, of course, that population has also spread into Michigan. Uh, beyond, and, and we know individuals from Wisconsin have traveled into Iowa, Missouri, uh, Illinois, Indiana, possibly even in, into Kentucky. Uh, it seems like unless they get to a big chunk of wild land, their ability to, to successfully colonize an area is going to be difficult. And the nearest places probably would be places like the Ozarks of Missouri. And although there have been some wolves that have made it that, unless a pair just happens to find each other there, the ability to colonize that area is probably remote. Uh, the place that in the Great Lakes that probably has the, the best potential right now for wolves would be the Lower Peninsula of Michigan. And uh, for some reason, only a few wolves have been able to cross that Mackinac Strait and get into that area. But that would be the area that have probably the most potential for supporting additional wolves in the Great Lakes region. And your thoughts on uh, our ability to coexist with wolves? I mean, humans and wolves have not had a good history together, uh, especially in the United States and especially in, in recent years. Uh, it, what do you what do you see as a, our ability to sort of coexist with these animals? I, I I think the, we do have good abilities, and uh, it's interesting the DNR also published their new uh, attitude survey, and in, in general, uh, between 2014 and the current, the one that was just done this summer, the attitudes are actually better, even though we probably have more wolves on the landscape, and we're seeing things like uh, depredation on pet dogs are declining. I think people are kind of learning to live with wolves, that you do things a little bit differently. Uh, I lost my dog a couple of years ago uh, after she got too old, but uh, you let the dog out and you, at night, you put some lights on, you, you just do things a little differently, and you eventually just learn to live with wolves and you know that you can't just let your dog run at large you have to keep an eye on your dog and in practices like that people um using better fencing uh, for farm animals uh, watching their animals perhaps a little more carefully i think we do have a lot of capacity to be able to co- coexist with wolves perhaps less so in areas that are very uh, highly developed but i think in, in our wildlands uh, we do have a lot of capacity We've been speaking with biologist Adrian Whiteven of Wisconsin Green Fire. The public comment period on the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources 2022 Wolf Management Plan runs through January 10th, 2023. To review the plan or to provide comment, search for Wolf Management Plan at dnr.wisconsin.gov. Adrian Whiteven, thank you for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. Thank you. It's now 6.53 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson brings us two new movies. First is a fun, if familiar-feeling animated heist movie, The Bad Guys. Think Ocean's Eleven, but with animals on the small screen. Then a rare, great sequel as good as the original, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. On the outside, the five of you are villains, predators. Remorseless sociopaths. Oh, stop it. You're making me blush. That was a clip from the trailer for a fun new animated movie, Bad Guys, directed by Pierre Perry Fila. Nothing heavy or complicated here, just a fast-paced caper action movie with likable characters and enough twists and turns to keep things interesting. This is being described by critics as an Ocean Eleven for kids with animals, and that isn't too far off. We get five suave bad guys to root for, a wolf, a shark, a snake, a tarantula, and a piranha. The story opens mid-caper with the bad guys, alluding the cops, led by a one wonderfully over-the-top police chief, Misty Luggins, Alex Borstein. The leader of the bad guys is Mr. Wolf, Sam Rockwell. His best bud and safecracker is Mr. Snake, Mark Marone. The dynamic between the two is the most developed and the most fun, but the others are enjoyable too. Tarantula, Aquafina, is the computer geek. Piranha, Anthony Ramos of In the Heights, is the fighter with a deadly fart. And Shark, Craig Robinson, is the master of disguise. Unfortunately, they are caught, almost pulling off the crime that has captured the other master thieves. Wolf, the brains, is irritated by the governor. An exceptional Zazi Beats, who tells a disguised wolf that his second-rate gang could never steal the ultimate prize, a heavily guarded trophy for the city's top do-gooder. Wolf convinces his reluctant friends to go along, which leads to a confrontation with said do-gooder, Professor Marmalade, Richard Aliwad. Marmalade accepts the ultimate challenge of reforming the bad guys. Wolf again persuades the gang, this time to stay out of jail. But Wolf also seems conflicted after an accidental act of goodness. All in all, a fun, action-packed, animated film. Next, a sequel with some amazing new world-building and intriguing new characters and situations. That was a clip from the trailer for Black Panther's Wakanda Forever, again co-written and directed by Ryan Coogler. This movie is the rare sequel, as good as the original. The center of the story is its several strong women characters, even as they mourn the sudden loss of T'Challa, the Black Panther, and King of Wakanda. Sadly, in real life, we have lost a significant actor, Chadwick Bousman, only 43, to cancer. The opening credits honor Bousman, and the film is dedicated to him. In T'Challa's absence, he has died of an unexpected explained disease, Queen Ramonda, the always great Angela Bassett, has stealingly accepted her role in a difficult world where Wakanda's vibranium that powers the country's hyper-advanced civilization is coveted by the world's leaders. Vibranium is a meteorite-derived element exclusively possessed by the Wakandans. T'Challa revealed the Wakandans' true heritage, power, to help save the world. See last movie. Meanwhile, T'Challa's sister, Wakanda's leading scientist, Cherie Letitia Wright, is heartbroken. She blames herself for failing to cure his illness. Cherie doesn't believe the he is with the ancestors tradition that comforts her mom. A striking early scene shows the public funeral procession with everyone in white. Flash forward a year and the queen has used all her women royal guard, the Dora Malaju, to foil an attempt to steal vibranium from her people. The Dora Malaju are still led by Ao Dani Garia, also still mourning her king. Soon the major powers are racing for another source of vibranium 
Kingdom, which threatens a hitherto unknown sea kingdom, the Tlalocan, ruled by a Mayan demigod Namor, Tenok Huerta. This demigod shares the name of the comic book character Namor, who also ruled an undersea kingdom, but the new Namor has been reimagined. The original 1939 Namor's mother was an Atlantis princess, and his father was an explorer. The new Namor's mother and father come from an indigenous people threatened by European invaders in the Yucatan. The people pray, and their shaman creates a potion so they can live underwater. Namor's pregnant mother drinks and gives birth to a super strong flying being. Namor proposes an alliance with the Wakandans against the colonizers, but is rebuffed and declares war on Wakanda. This is an extraordinary movie of world building in Wakanda and the Talokan undersea world. There are entertaining battles and a deeply human story is told. The cinematography by Autumn Arkhipov is incredible and Ruth Carter's costumes are again stunning. An outstanding film. See it on the biggest screen available if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Antonio Barreras. Welcome aboard, Antonio. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, and Nicholas Lee for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. You can stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.